Hi, I'm about to read from Judges, and it's chapter 1, starting at verse 1. This is the military failure of Israel. Incomplete conquest of the land. Israel fights the remaining Canaanites. After the death of Joshua, the Israelites asked the Lord, Who will be the first to go up and fight for us against the Canaanites? The Lord answered, Judah is to go. I have given the land into their hands. Then the men of Judah said to the Simeonites, their brothers, come up with us into the territory allotted to us to fight against the Canaanites. We in turn will go with you into yours. So the Simeonites went with them. When Judah attacked, the Lord gave the Canaanites and Perizzites into their hands and they struck down 10,000 men at Bezek. It was there that they found Odoni-Bezek and fought against him, putting to rout the Canaanites and per Perizzites. Odoni-Bezek fled, but they chased him, caught him, cut off his thumbs and big toes. Then Adonai-Bezek said, 70 kings with their thumbs and big toes cut off have picked up the scraps under my table. Now God has paid me back for what I did to them. They brought him to to Jerusalem and he died there. The men of Judah attacked Jerusalem and also took it. They put the city to the sword and set it on fire. After that, the men of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites living in the hill country, the Negev and the western foothills. They advanced against the Canaanites living in Hebron, formerly called Kiriath Arba, and defeated Sheshai, Ahiman and Talmai. From there they advanced against the people living in Deber, formerly called Kiriath Sefer, and Caleb said, I will give my daughter Aksa in marriage to the man who attacks and captures Kiriath Sefer. Othniel, son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, took it, so Caleb gave his daughter Aksa to him in marriage. One day when she came to Othniel, she urged him to ask her father for a field. When she <coughs> sorry. When she got off her donkey, Caleb asked her, what can I do for you? She replied, do me a special favor. Since you have given me land in the Negev, give me also springs of water. Then Caleb gave her the upper and lower springs. <clears throat> the descendants of Moses' father-in-law, the Kenite, went up from the city of Palms with the men of Judah to live among the people of the desert of Judah and in the Negev near Arad. Then the men of Judah went with the Simeonites, their brothers, and attacked the Canaanites living in Sephath and totally destroyed the city. Therefore, it, it was called Hormah. And the men of Judah also took Gaza, Ashkelon, and Ekron, each city with its territory. <coughs> Sorry. The Lord was with the men of Judah. They took possession of the hill country, but they were unable to drive out the people from the plains because they had iron chariots. As Moses had promised, Hebron was given to Caleb, who drove from it the three sons of Anak. The Benjamites, however, failed to dislodge the Jebusites who were living in Jerusalem. To this day, the Jebusites live there with the Benjamites. Now the house of Joseph attacked Bethel, and the Lord was with them. When they sent men to spy out Bethel, formerly called Luz, the spies saw the man coming out of the city, and they said to him, Show us how to get into the city, and we will see, it, see to it that you are treated well. So he showed them, and they put the city to the sword, but spared the man and his whole family. 
He then went to the land of the Hittites, where he built a city called Luz, which is its name to this day. But Manasseh did not drive out the people of Bethshan, nor Tarnak, nor Dor, or Ibram, or Megiddo, and the surrounding settlements. For the Canaanites were determined to live in that land. When Israel became strong, they pressed the Canaanites into forced labor, but never drove them out completely. Nor did Ephraim drive out the Canaanites living in Gaza, but the Canaanites continued to live among them. Neither did Zebulun drive out the Canaanites living in Kitron or Nahalol, who remained among them, but they did subject them to forced labor. Nor did Asher drive out those living in Acha or Sidon or Alab or Akzib or Helabar or Aphek or Rehob. And because of this, the people of Asher lived among the Canaanite inhabitants of the land. Neither did Naphtali drive out those living in Beth Shemesh or Beth Anath, but the Naphtalites too also lived in the Canaanite inhabitants of the land. And those living in Beth Shemesh and Beth Anath became forced laborers for them. The Amorites confined the Danites to the hill country, not allowing them to come down to the plain. And the Amorites were determined to hold out in Mount Heres, Ajalon, Shalbim. But when the power of the house of Joseph increased, they too were pressed into forced labor. The boundary of the Amorites was from Scorpion Pass to Selah and beyond. Well, we don't usually give rounds of applause for Bible readings, but that was pretty incredible, wasn't it? Uh, well done, Diane. Give her a little clap. That, that was... Whew. What an effort. Um, we are starting in Judges today, and there's lots going on, uh, heaps going on. Liam graciously went out on holidays to let me kick this one off uh, and try and get this context and all that's going on in there. Uh, so wish me luck. Uh, Pray for me quietly as we go. Thank you, Tilly. Um, and just a reminder that we will have a Q&A afterwards and I will do my very best to answer your questions or find out the answer later. Uh, and if you want to send it anonymously, uh, just text it through to this number and then we'll get it and you don't have to uh, be loud and proud with it. Um, now, many of you know that I love movies. Uh, and so I want to describe to you a few scenes uh, from a movie, a, a typical kind of movie, not the typical kind of movie that I'd watch, uh, but bear with me. Opening scene. Uh, it's, it's bright, it's sunny, it's a park. Uh, a young man and a young woman are, are walking in opposite directions and bump into each other, kind of spilling their bits and pieces out on the ground. Uh, they both reach down at exactly the same time to pick their stuff up. As they do, their eyes meet. You can picture the frame. Everything gets a little bit brighter. It's one of those moments you can practically hear their hearts beating faster and faster. And cut ahead to the next scene. It's a wedding day. Uh, the couple are laughing along as the best man makes his speech. Uh, he des describes their incredible story, love at first sight. Uh, that day when they met in the park, he talks about the unshakable love that they now share together that will last the test of time. Uh, flash forward again. Uh, we see the man carry his new wife over the threshold of their house. Uh, we see their joy as they make this house their home. Uh, think renovations, splashing paint on each other. Uh, we even see them putting together a baby's room. 
uh, both with huge grins on their faces. Uh, cut ahead one more time. Uh, this time it's dreary, it's raining. Uh, we get that little banner across the bottom of the screen that says three years later. Uh, and this one, the colours are muted. Uh, it's dreary, it's sad. Uh, it goes through the same house, but it's mostly devoid of furniture, empty and lifeless. Uh, and we scan across to the husband, hunched down in the corner, crying, uh, looking at a photo of his wife on their wedding day. And it leads us to ask, doesn't it, where did it all go wrong? What happened to this love story? Where did it all go wrong? I think it's not an uncommon question in life. Uh, sometimes in relationships, like the movie I just described, uh, perhaps it's sport, uh, the seemingly insurmountable score victory is snatched from your hands uh, when it all seems certain. Maybe it's in a business. Uh, it starts off all guns blazing, looking uh, on top of the world, but ultimately crashes into bankruptcy. It's also the question that we're left asking in the book of Judges. Uh, as we wait, work our way through, we see things slide into disaster. I actually thought, uh, as I started preparing, about teasing you, raising the questions, oh, what's going to happen in Judges? Will it be good? Will it be bad? Uh, but uh, here's the spoiler. I think most of you know already, Judges is a depressing book. It's a book where things go terribly. Uh, throughout the book, we th see things spiral down worse and worse and worse, uh, and we end up with a pretty bleak picture. Uh, I skipped to the end because I know lots of you know it already. Uh, it's there on our title screen, is it? Wicked people, gracious God. Uh, by the time we get to the end of Judges, we'll be in truly R-rated territory, violent and disgusting. Um, but what you may not realise, uh, you, you may have heard some of those stories, but what you might not realise is that the book of Judges should start full of hope and optimism. Uh, it flows directly on from the book of Joshua. It's really a continuation of the same story. Joshua finishes with the people of Israel declaring that they will serve the Lord. Uh, we're braced and ready for them to live in peace in this great land that God has given them. But it's not what comes next, is it? That's not what we get when we come to this book of Judges. And so today, as we launch this series, as we start looking at this book, uh, we want to ask that all-important question. Where did it all go wrong? And I think it's a question that's just as relevant for us today. Now, I'm not that old. I'm still in my 30s. Just... Uh, but I've already seen lots of people in my lifetime uh, who, who look like they've got it together as Christians, who seem rock solid, but who over the course of years have slipped away, who've gone from Jesus. People who back then you'd say not in a million years would this person ever be shaken. Maybe you know people like that. And so it's important for us to ask the question now before it's too late to work out what is it that, that can send things spiralling so badly? How does it all go, go so wrong? We need to ask that so that we don't slip away like so many others have. Now, let me show you the plan. This is where we're heading today. Um, firstly, we're going to orient ourselves with where the book of Judges fits uh, in the story of the Bible. And we're going to look at how Israel came to be at this place that they are uh, as Judges starts. 
Uh, next, we're going to address the elephant in the room. Um, what's with the violence in the Old Testament? Uh, if you've done any reading in Judges and Joshua as well, uh, you'll see there's a lot of violence. Uh, we need to be able to reconcile with that as Christians. So that, we're going to take a little detour to think about that. Uh, third, uh, we'll actually get stuck into the detail of the book of Judges. I know that's a long time coming. Uh, we're going to look at today's passage and we're going to see the beginning of the end. Uh, we're going to see how the spiral starts. Uh, and lastly, as we always do, we'll think about what it means for us here and now. Uh, particularly think about where could all things go wrong for us. Uh, and as always, I'm going to pray that God gives me his words, his wisdom, uh, as we engage with his word. Lord, we want to thank you again that we can be here. We thank you for this uh, book of Judges that you've given us that, that seems uh, in many ways so hard to understand. Uh, please give me wisdom and your words as I, I try to explain that. Help me to speak your truth uh, and help all of us to grow from it. Uh, we pray it in Jesus' name. All right. Uh, so that first one, how they got here. Uh, we need to make sure that we understand where the book of Judges fits in the scheme of things. Uh, Judges wasn't designed as a standalone little part of the Bible. Uh, we're not supposed to read it with no reference to the rest of the Bible. We're supposed to understand where it fits. Uh, and so we won't understand its message unless we do. Uh, so that's what we're going to have a quick look at. Uh, now, doing this kind of thing is always a challenge. Uh, you may notice that most preachers, and Liam and I are definitely no exception to this, uh, will always be tempted to tell you more rather than less. Uh, uh, and trying to cover the history of Israel up to Judges, well, there's plenty to talk about in there. So I'm going to uh, do my very best to work against that tendency and give you the brief version. Uh, and the brief version starts uh, with God's promise to Abraham. That's at the heart of what's going on here. Um, back in Genesis, the first book of the Bible, uh, God promises, uh, makes a promise about land uh, that he's going to give Abraham, or Abraham as, as he was at this point. Uh, and it's right near the beginning of the Bible. Uh, and I'm going to read you some parts of that interaction between Abraham and God. Uh, I'm very conscious that in this section where I'm telling you how important it is to understand where something fits in the Bible, I'm going to be skipping through it and not reading all the verses and uh, not giving you the full context. So uh, it's probably a good moment to draw attention to your handouts. You'll notice down the bottom uh, of the little outline are all the verses that I'll reference today. Uh, so we do that because we want you to see that uh, though I'm only giving you pieces, uh, that there is a context. You can check it out. You can go read into it. Make sure that what I'm telling you is actually what's there. Uh, and so, so that's a really important thing, I think. Um, so it is un unfortunate that we have to skip through, but, uh, but it's important to, to get to judges to be able to have a quick look at this stuff. Um, so that said, we're going to have a look at some of the verses there in Genesis 15. Uh, so here we go. He, God, uh, he, I, I put the God in brackets and the Abraham in brackets. Uh, he took him outside and said, look at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said, to him, so shall your offspring be. Abraham believed the Lord and it was credited to him as righteousness. He also said to him, I'm the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the land of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of. But Abraham said, Sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? Um, now the land that God's talking about that he's giving him possession of is the very same land that they've started uh, taking in Joshua and continuing in Judges. Uh, and I'm going to skip down a few verses from what I just read uh, 
And we'll see God gives quite a detailed account of what's going to happen next after Abraham. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with a great possession, with great possessions. You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. Um, so there we see God showing Abraham the future of his family, uh, who have des descendants like the stars, uh, and he promises this land via many years in Egypt, enslaved to them. Uh, by the time of Judges, all this that God predicted had happened. Uh, jetting through the timeline, we see Abraham gives birth, or Sarah, his wife, gives birth to Isaac, and they have uh, Isaac has Jacob, and Jacob has the sons from which uh, the 12 tribes of Israel are made up of. Uh, and through Joseph, uh, they're rescued from a famine but wind up stuck in Egypt uh, in slavery. Fast forward, just like God said, a few hundred years, and God leads them out of Egypt through his servant Moses. Uh, God makes them a nation in that process. He gives them his law. Uh, and all the way along, they're being driven on uh, by this promise of God to bring them into the promised land, a land that they, they knew as being flowing with milk and honey, a land of abundance. Uh, and finally, after all those years in the book of Joshua, they begin to enter this land. Um, now, yesterday uh, was Brooklyn, my little girl's birthday. She turned four. Uh, four is a pretty great age. I don't know if you've had kids there or, or you can remember maybe. Uh, it's an age where you know enough to be excited about your birthday. You know some of the things that are going to happen. You know there's going to be presents, there's going to be cake, uh, but you don't quite have your head around time and how time works uh, and how long it's going to be until it arrives. So for Brooklyn, uh, about a month ago was her brother, Bruce. It was his birthday, and she's just known since then that sometime soon it will be her birthday. Uh, and so most days she'd wake up, and she'd come to us and say, is it my birthday today? She was excited every day. Is it now? Is it soon? When is it going to be? Uh, most days, of course, sorry, it's not yet. But yesterday, what a day. We finally got to say, see a little face light up. We said, it's your birthday. Oh, she's uh, an excitable little girl. Uh, it was a big day yesterday. Uh, but it was amazing for her to wake up and have that day finally arrive. Uh, well, the book of Joshua is that moment for Israel. It's the moment that they've been waiting for. They've been waiting, waiting, waiting to finally enter this land all these years, hundreds of years. Uh, and so finally in Joshua it starts to happen. Uh, at, at this point it's good to, to point out uh, that this wasn't an unconditional promise of God's. This land uh, didn't come with no strings attached. Uh, he warned them that as they enter this land... Uh, that there was an important condition, that they were to stay his people, that they were to be obedient to his commands, particularly uh, one of the big ones was to not worship any other gods. And it's because of that danger that we read through the Bible that they were to drive out the other nations from the land God was giving them. Um, so it says it in, in multiple places. I'll give you one from Deuteronomy 7. Uh, we read that when the Lord your God brings you into the land you are entering to possess, 
and drives out before you many nations, the Hittites, Girgashites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, seven nations larger and stronger than you. And when the Lord your God has delivered them over to you and you have defeated them, then you must destroy them totally. Make no treaty with them and show them no mercy. Do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons, for they will turn your children away from following me to serve other gods. And the Lord's anger will burn against you and will quickly destroy you. Uh, and it's on that note, as we hear that, that we need to address the elephant in the room. What, what is with all the violence that we see in the Old Testament, uh, particularly as they conquer the Promised Land? There's lots. Uh, what do we do with it? Uh, I'm not sure uh, if you've thought about the criticism before. Um, for me, it's certainly been one of the more difficult ones to grapple with. Uh, to wrestle with understanding this part of the Bible. How do we deal with the violence? How do we deal with them conquering these people, to, to destroy these people, um, particularly in a book like Judges? Uh, and if you haven't wrestled with it before, you should. Uh, you should understand this uh, because it's here. It's part of the Bible. It's part of God. Uh, and I think whether deliberately or not, often we, we kind of shy away from it. Uh, we just compartmentalise things. They say, uh, some people say that there's kind of the Old Testament God and, and that was kind of violent, I don't really understand it, but now I've got the New Testament, the God of love, I don't have to worry about it. But it's not as though God changed, is it? It's the same God, old and new. Uh, and so we need to make sure that we can get our head around uh, this stuff to understand it. Um, like most things we do, we could easily spend weeks just on this topic alone, uh, but tonight it's, it's only one point in three, uh, and so we're going to give it a, a really quick run, not give it the time it deserves. Um, but if you want to keep getting your head around it, please come chat with me. I'll try and point you to some resources, chat it through with you, because uh, it is an important thing for us to wrestle with. Uh, and so let's have a go at working it out. Uh, as we do, uh, the first thing I want to say is that we do need to be careful not to assume that everything that we read in the Bible is happening because God commands it. Uh, a large proportion of the violence we see, particularly in the book of Judges, is not what God commands. It's there because people have deliberately ignored God's commands. Uh, and it's, uh, it's accounting for that. Uh, we'll see that particularly in the last few chapters of Judges where it gets pretty horrendous. Uh, it gets horrendous because people stop listening to God. Uh, those chapters are there for a reason. It's important for us to see where ignoring God can lead us. I don't know if you've seen this movie. It came out a year or two ago. Uh, it's a movie set in Nazi Germany and it copped a fair bit of criticism. It's a fantastic movie if you ever get the chance to see it. But it copped a lot of criticism, I think, because lots of, lots of people assumed that because it had Nazis in it as the main characters, that it must in some way be pro-Nazi. Uh, it was a comedy, maybe that confuses people a little bit. Um, but the reality was that though it was set in Nazi Germany, it was showing how evil the movement was. It was a lesson. It was trying to teach us to never let something like that happen again. I think people sometimes get confused about the Bible in the same way. Uh, th they assume that because we read something in the Bible, that it must be positive, that it must be something the Bible endorses, where in reality, often it's a lesson of what not to do. It's a lesson that we're supposed to be learning from. Um, now, as I say that, you say, Rob, that's great, 
but it doesn't account for some of the stuff that we read. That God does command them to kill people, doesn't he? Uh, what about those bits? Uh, in fact, uh, we, we read it earlier, didn't we? In that passage I read from Deuteronomy, we saw God command his people to destroy them totally. Uh, that's God commanding Israel to kill and destroy people. Um, now, in answering that, it's good to acknowledge there's a few different takes, mostly the same, but, but slight variations in there of, of how it works. Um, I'm not going to dig right into all the depth of that, uh, but I want to give you two principles to hold on to as you wrestle through it. Um, the first one is that it's not as simple as it seems. Uh, there's clearly a complexity to the language that we read in the Bible around this stuff uh, about what's happening. Um, so, for example, we regularly see uh, both the terms drive them out alongside totally destroy, uh, and it, it's not both. Um, so what is, what's going on there? They're interchanged. Um, we see that same complexity throughout Joshua where sometimes we see uh, a group of people that in one chapter we're told are totally destroyed and then later on they, they crop up again. How did they get there? I thought they were destroyed. Um, so to give you an example of that, I'll read from Joshua 10. Uh, then Joshua and all Israel with him went up from Eglon to Hebron and attacked it. They took the city and put it to the sword, together with its king, its villages, and everyone in it. They left no survivors. Uh, just, at Eglon, just as at Eglon, they totally destroyed it and everyone in it. Then Joshua and all Israel with him turned around and attacked Debir. They took the city, its kings, and its villages and put them to the sword. Everyone in it they totally destroyed. They left no survivors. They did to Debir and its king as they had done to Libna and its king and to Hebron. Um, now that's pretty straightforward, it seems, isn't it? Uh, they totally destroy those people in, in both Hebron and Debir. But look what happens when we skip ahead a few chapters. So we go from chapter 10 to chapter 15, and this is what we get. In accordance with the Lord's command to him, Joshua gave to Caleb, son of Jephunneh, a portion in Judah, Kirath Abba, that is Hebron. Abba was the forefather of Anak. From Hebron, Caleb drove out three Anakites, Sheshai, Ahiman, and Talmai, the sons of Anak. From there, he marched against the people living in Debir, formerly called Kiriath-Sephir. And now that was quite a mouthful. I resonate with you now, Diane. Um, but here, just a few chapters later, we've got them marching on these same people that we just read were totally destroyed. Um, now, the explanation that seems to fit best is that this part of the Bible was written with the same rhetorical style that most of the ancient writing of the time was written in, that it's more so an expression of total victory rather than an absolute statement about there being no survivors. Uh, certainly we see specific in incidents through these passages of God showing mercy to particular people uh, within the conquest. So, so Rahab's a really good example of that in Jericho, uh, where God spared her when she held the Israelite spies uh, and went on, she went on to be part of Jesus' family tree. Uh, and so we see it's, it's not always wholesale. Um, so it's not simple. Uh, it's not as simple as it, it often first appears to be. Um, now, all that being said, that, that's just to help us think about that there's more than meets the eye going on there. Um, but that being said, we do need to account for those who did die. God does command them to attack those places and clearly people died. Lots of people died. 
Uh, and many of us take those exceptions that I just talked about, they kind of twist it and sweep it all under the rug as though none of it happened. Um, but we can't do that. We, we do need to face up to the reality that at God's command, lots of people were killed. Uh, and, and so that's the second thing we need to hang on to uh, as we wrestle with these passages. Uh, that is that ultimately, this is about God's righteous judgment. This conquest of Canaan isn't God making space for his favourites. It's not getting rid of an inconvenient but lovely people group. Uh, it's, not, uh, it's clear uh, in the Bible that this conquest is an act of judgment against a very guilty Canaan. Uh, that's really clear in the Bible. Uh, we read it here in Deuteronomy 9, so Deuteronomy 9.4. After the Lord your God has driven them out before you, do not say to yourself, the Lord has brought me here to take possession of this land because of my righteousness. No, it is on account of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is going to drive them out before you. These guys in Canaan were wicked. Uh, an easy example to give you is that it was really common practice for them to sacrifice children. Uh, these are not good guys. Uh, they were deserving of judgment. What happened here uh, is akin to Noah and the flood, uh, God's judgment. It's akin to Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, where, again, it was God's judgment against an evil people. Uh, it's just that in, in this case, uh, rather than angels or flood, God uses Israel. Uh, and it's a judgment that's been brewing for hundreds of years. Uh, so back in Genesis 15, where I read before, uh, it talks about uh, that sin of, of the people in Canaan. Uh, God says to Abraham that their sin hasn't reached its full measure. Uh, God is giving them time. He's patient, uh, giving them a chance to turn. But ultimately, their sins need to be judged. And it's not biased. God gives that same warning to Israel itself, uh, that if they continue in wickedness, that ultimately judgment will come for them as well. And it does. We know that through our Bible history. Uh, ultimately, the Assyrians conquer the northern kingdom, the Babylonians the southern kingdom, and God's judgment plays out against his chosen people as well. So though this violence can be hard to grapple with, Ultimately, we, we need to recognise that it's there because we have a God of justice, a God who won't let sin go unpunished. Uh, and that's a good thing. Uh, I said before that often we have this picture of the Old Testament being the violent side and the New Testament being the love side. Um, but I think it's important to recognise as we grapple with all this that the most violent act that we see in the Bible happens not in the Old Testament but in the New Testament. It happens when Jesus dies on the cross, when one innocent man suffers the judgment of a whole world of sin. And of course, that violence happens because of God's great love for us. Uh, so there you go, that's the elephant in the room or, or my quick version of it. Uh, hopefully that's been helpful in, in wrapping your head around this stuff. Like I said, it's good to, to keep working at this, to try and figure it out. So if you want to keep talking more about that, uh, please, please come chat with me. Please keep digging in or, or use question time. Uh, but we finally made it. We're going to move on to our judge's passage itself um, and with it, the beginning of the end. Uh, and we'll be pretty quick here. Um, we're just going to scoot through. The passage um, 
really in Judges serves as one of two introductions. So Judges is a pretty special book, two introductions. Uh, we'll see the next one next week. And it's kind of a summary of the state of things in the land at that time. Uh, you might have noticed as Dion read that verses, in verses 10 and 11, uh, Judah attacked the Canaanites living in Hebron and Debir. Ah, those same places that we heard about earlier from Joshua. Uh, uh, I don't think it's happening again. Uh, this isn't a, a kind of a chronological take. Uh, it's supposed to just give you a bit of a summary of all that's going on. Uh, and so uh, don't think too hard about that this happened and this happened and this happened. Uh, it's giving us a summary of this entry into the land, of Israel sweeping across into this promised land uh, so that we can be ready for what happens next through Judges. Uh, really, we're just seeing how things started out. Uh, and pr- out of the gates, pretty good. Have a look at the first two verses, verses 1 and 2. After the death of Joshua, the Israelites asked the Lord, Who of us is to go up first to fight the Canaanites? The Lord answered, Judah shall go up. I have given the land into their hands. Great start. They're doing what they're supposed to. They go to God. They ask what to do. Uh, he tells them, Perfect. Until verse 3, uh, we read, The men of Judah then said to the Simeonites, their fellow Israelites, Come with us to the territory allotted to us to fight against the Canaanites. Uh, we in turn will go with you into yours. So the Simeonites went with them. God said Judah should go, and Judah says, Might just bring Simeonites just in case. It's not a disaster, but it is a slight deviation, isn't it? We should notice it. Uh, that it's not quite what God said. It's enough to ring alarm bells. It's enough to show that they're not quite trusting in God's instructions already. Other than that, the first part of of this passage does go pretty well. Uh, They seem to be conquering and driving out just like they're supposed to be. Uh, There's a couple of interesting little moments there. Uh, They capture a king. Uh, and though it may, may sound a bit strange and violent to us, they cut off his thumbs and his big toes. This doesn't sound very comfortable. Um, but it's interesting to note that though that sounds very harsh to us, uh, the guy they did it to doesn't actually think so. Look at what he says. He says, 70 kings with their thumbs and big toes cut off have picked up scraps under my table. Now God has paid me back for what I did to them. So he gets this is God's justice. Isn't that interesting? Uh, We also see Caleb, uh, whose name you might recognise. He was way back um, early on uh, in the Exodus. Uh, We read about him first in Numbers. Uh, He was one of the original spies along with Joshua that went into the Promised Land to scope it out, to to ready them to attack. And, uh, And all but he and Joshua came back and trusted God enough to say, let's go, let's take it. Everyone else, all the other spies... Uh, were afraid. They didn't trust God, and so uh, they ignored God's push to to go into the promised land then, and Israel ended up wandering the desert for 40 years. But here, Caleb, uh, he's pretty old at this point, um, but his faith is still strong. Uh, He's gone, ho, come on, let's take this land, let's trust God for it. He offers his daughter's hand uh, to whoever conquers Debir, Uh, when Othniel, and remember his name, he'll come up again in Judges, uh, when he does it, he gets her hand and the daughter asks for for this particular spring uh, as well. Uh, And it's 
It's just a little tidbit, but it's there showing us that there were people who were faithful. There were people who wanted to get into this land, who wanted to trust God and were ready for the abundance that God had promised them. Um, But things really take a turn for the worse when we get down to verse 19. Uh, We read, The Lord was with the men of Judah. They took possession of the hill country, but they were unable to drive the people from the plains because they had chariots fitted with iron. Now, notice the reason there. Uh, They were unable to drive out the people. It says because they had chariots fitted with iron. Uh, We did get that warning earlier on before they got to the land that these would be a mighty people, a stronger people than them, but God sends them anyway. And so we need to recognise where the problem really lies. Uh, The Lord was with them, the same Lord uh, who sent the plagues to Egypt, uh, who fed them through their time in the desert, who parted the Red Sea, uh, who tumbled the walls of Jericho with a few trumpets and a bit of marching. Uh, The same Lord was there with them. The problem here wasn't the iron chariots. The problem was the people. They weren't trusting God. They had God with them. Chariots were no problem. God can dispense with some iron chariots. We're not given all the details, but it's clear that the problem is their lack of trust in God to bring them victory. Uh, Six, more times we read about one of the tribes being unable to drive out the people. Uh, In some instances we see the tribes initially not strong enough, uh, which is code again for they didn't trust God enough. Uh, And when they finally were strong enough, they still don't drive them out uh, and instead they put them to work as forced labourers. And so again and again, they fail to obey God. They fail to trust God. But the land was conquered. Uh, And so that quick summary of chapter 1, some good, some bad, Um, To help us think about it, this week I stumbled across a video of a surfing competition. I'm not a surfer. I don't know much about surfing, but I stumbled across this video. uh, And it was in Sydney this past week, and I saw this bloke uh, do this incredible trick. I was really gobsmacked by it. I'll show you. It's only a short clip. Whoa, that's pretty good, right? I don't know anything about surfing, but I reckon that's pretty good. Uh, I at least was very impressed. I could hear, I'd cut the sound out, but uh, I could hear from the video that the crowd was impressed. Uh, the comments on the video I was watching online, uh, they were impressed. Uh, but this trick caused some controversy. Because when the scores came in, it wasn't so good. Uh, this surfer, I think he's the world number one, uh, he was expecting to get sort of an 8 or 9 out of 10 score for a trick like that but he got just 1.7. Apparently it was because he didn't land exactly on the wave or something like that. If you're a surfer, come and explain it to me later. Uh, But his expectation was high. He thought it wasn't perfect. He didn't think he perfectly nailed it, but he thought he'd done well enough. Uh, And instead, uh, he got knocked out of the competition. His scores weren't high enough. You can even, if you go look it up, you'll find a video of him in the change rooms after, smashing his board. He's not happy. I think Israel in this first chapter is thinking pretty similarly. 
I think they're thinking, well, look, we didn't nail it. It's not perfect. Well, there's a few slip-ups along the way. But largely, we've done pretty well. I mean, we've conquered the land like we were supposed to. I think that was their mindset at the end of this section. If you asked Israel at that moment, what do they think their score out of 10 would be? I reckon, I'm only guessing, uh, but I reckon they'd probably say seven or eight. Seven or eight. few compromises, not quite as God told us, but all in all, not too bad. But have a look with me at the start of chapter 2. Here, here we get to see what God has to say. We see God's response. The angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim and said, I brought you up out of Egypt and led you into the land I swore to give your ancestors. I said, I will never break my covenant with you and you shall not make a covenant with the people of this land, but you shall break down their altars. Yet you have disobeyed me. Why have you done this? And I've also said, I will not drive them out before you. They will become traps for you, and their gods will become snares to you. When the angel of the Lord has spoken these things, had spoken these things to all the Israelites, the people wept aloud, and they called that place Bokim. There they offered sacrifices to the Lord. It's pretty clear there, isn't it? It's not a seven or eight. This is God declaring total failure. He offered them so much, he he said they simply needed to trust him. He would go ahead. He would drive the people out. They just needed to trust. Their history told them he's trustworthy. He's reliable. He can do this. They have a couple of generations of proof. But instead they gave in to compromise. God warned them that if they don't drive those people out, that those people will be a spiritual cancer to them. That instead of serving God and prospering in the promised land, they'll be led astray to worship false idols. And so they get what God warned they would. Uh, I'll read verse 3 again. And I have also said, I will not drive them out before you. They will become traps for you, and their gods will become snares to you. Uh, And we see the setup to what will become a vicious cycle that repeats through Judges. That Israel turn aside from God and be oppressed by the people they've left in the land. Finally, they'll call out and God will rescue them through a judge. That's where he gets the name judges. And then the whole thing will start all over again. We're going to dig into that pattern and how it all unfolds a bit more next week. But for now, we want to recognise that it's here in this opening chapter that we see the beginning of the end. Not in drastic rebellion, but in small compromise. Instead of going by themselves, like God says, Judah invites Simeon along too. And it seems perfectly reasonable. They're brothers after all. They're on on the same team. Why wouldn't they bring them? They don't quite drive the people out. These people have better weapons than them, like iron chariots. Of course, it makes sense to hunker down, doesn't it, to leave them. Why drive them off? when you can keep them around, do some work for you. Surely God knows how hard it's going to be uh, trying to set up this new land. Surely God wouldn't begrudge them a little bit of extra help, would he? See, the damage in the book of Judges ultimately comes in, in Israel turning their backs on God and turning to other gods. But it begins right here 
with just a little bit of compromise. That's how it starts. And uh, so as we come to the end, uh, we need to ask, what's here for us? What does this passage show us about living here and now? We've seen the place where it all went wrong for Israel. But we need to ask, where could it go wrong for us? What's our danger? Of course, in a, a whole lot of ways, our situation is very different from what we see going on in this book. Uh, I don't know if you've noticed, we're not at war. Uh, we're not trying to conquer anyone or drive anybody out. There's no promised land here for us. Uh, and nor should we be at war, by the way. Just a little caveat. Don't use this, this book to go out and declare war on anyone. You've got it wrong if you do. Um, so we're, we're not living in the same scenario, but there is a principle here that, that's just as true for us as it was for them. And it's the command that both they and us have to trust God wholly. When they entered the promised land, it wasn't about them being strong enough, mighty enough, having enough numbers. That's not how they were to win the battle. They didn't have to do anything. They just had to follow God. They just had to trust him and let him do the work. We're not at war, but like them, we don't have to achieve anything. Jesus has done the achieving. Jesus has won the battle. He's conquered sin for us. We just need to put our trust in him. The Israelites let their trust slip. They compromised. And I think the danger of compromise is just as present for us here today. It's easy for us to do the same thing, isn't it? You know, we don't have to worry about chariots made of iron, I don't think. But I reckon we are tempted to give up just a little bit of our trust in God. It won't start out as a, a wholesale rejection. We're not, gonna, we're not likely to just turn our backs on God and, and walk away from the start. But it's so easy to just, just slip a little bit, isn't it? Now let me give you a couple of examples of what that might look like. Uh, the first one I reckon we do this in is forgiveness. We say, I can forgive most people, but I just can't forgive that one thing, that one person who did that, that horrible thing to us. And it's a small compromise, isn't it? God calls us to forgive, but it's just one person. You've been hurt so badly. Surely God can just let this one slip. Surely we can just move that line a little bit. But it's a compromise, isn't it? It's dangerous. It's showing that we're not fully trusting in God. And now as I say that, I know that forgiveness is not easy. Uh, anything where we're tempted to compromise, I think, won't be easy. That's why we're tempted. Uh, I'm not pretending that forgiveness should be a simple and easy thing to do, but it is what we're called to. and It is how we express our trust in Jesus. And so it needs to be something that you're working to do. It can take time. It can be a process. But as soon as we, we start to say, I won't, I can't, it's showing something that's going on in the way that we trust God or, or lack of. One of the ones for me, I reckon a particularly hard one, is around wealth and security. Uh, God calls us to be generous. Uh, and I know I'll always be tempted to compromise and hold back a little bit too much. To try and make sure that I'm in control, that rather than trusting in God, that, I, that I've got things sorted. 
I reckon that's a hard one because it's what's going on in, in the heart. You can't see it. I'm aware of what my heart's doing. It's not obvious to anyone else. I mean, I, I work for a church. You guys get to see the budget if you want to. Uh, it, it's easy for me to look like I'm living generously. Uh, simply by the nature of my job, you, you make that assumption. Oh, maybe not all of you, but lots do. But I need to guard my heart in this. I know the temptation that's there. I know the temptation to slip into compromise. I think that tends to be the nature of compromise, doesn't it? That, that you don't always see it to look at it. And it's easy to look like things are going well, that you've got it all under control. That was the Israelites in chapter 1, wasn't it? They looked like they were doing pretty good. But in reality, they were sowing the seeds of disaster through small compromises. What about you? It's the question you need to ask. We all need to ask it. Where are you tempted to slide? Where are you tempted to compromise? It's a question for you. Others can't look in and see your heart. We need to weigh it honestly for ourselves. And we need to do something about it. It's hard, but we need to cling to the reality that we have a God who's stronger than any obstacle. Forgiveness, finances, whatever. Iron chariots even. And so we need to, to work to fully trust in him. I'll just speak loud and... Sorry, podcasters. Uh, Ken's going to sort it. Uh, the final thing we need to notice from this passage is the need to, to not just react but to respond. Uh, have a look at, at the final two verses of the passage. Uh, I'll read them out for us again. When the angel of the Lord had spoken these things to all the Israelites, the people wept aloud. They called that place Bokim. There they offered sacrifices to the Lord. It, it seems the right response, doesn't it? They seem to be doing the right thing. When they're confronted with their sin, they weep. They even name the place Bokim, which if you look at the little note at the bottom of your Bible means weeping or weepers. But where does that weeping lead? Not to repentance, not to change, not at all. It's just a response in the moment. Quickly they turn their backs on God. I reckon we can be tempted to do the same. We can react to the places where we've compromised. We can notice them. Uh, we can grieve them, but we need to do more. The right response is repentance, to turn away from it, to make changes. I want to urge us, each of us, to do whatever is necessary to make sure that happens, that that change comes through. Jesus tells us in Matthew 5, if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Drastic action is called for before our small compromises turn to something much worse. I'm going to pray for us uh, that we'd be people who do what it takes to fully trust in Jesus. So please join with me. Our Lord, as we see uh, those small compromises that, uh, that Israel made in this opening chapter of Judges. Lord, we, uh, we see that and we take the warning. 
Uh, Lord, help us to look at our lives. Help us to see where we're making compromises. See, help us to see where we're not trusting you as we should. Help us to turn and change. Help us to get that trust back. Lord, that's really hard. We can't do it on our own. And so we pray that through your spirit, you would enable that change. Uh, help us to be more and more like Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. We'll have question time in a minute, but for now the band's going to come up and lead us in a song. All right, Q&A time. Uh, let's let's uh, be pretty quick because that was a long one. Uh, George? In Judges chapter 2, it talks about the angel of the Lord. Who is, do we know who this angel is or not? Uh, I don't think so, no. What do you say? I don't, I don't think we know. All uh, oh, right, no. okay. I mean, we can guess. See? Hi, thanks, Rob. Two things. One, the thumb and the toe cutting off, as well as, I mean, the man who happened to thought it was God's judgment. Do you think that may also be that the people of God have taken on the practices of the people of the land? Yeah, following yep. God. Absolutely. So that was a practice, mm. kind of rendered the king pretty useless, and we read that he goes on to die. Uh, we don't know how quickly that is, mm. but yeah, yep, that would definitely thing be a practice. Is a, a question practice. of curiosity rather than any relevance. Sure. Why does it say why the angel was wherever he was before he came up to Bochum at Gilgal? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think I slipped that into the home group mm. notes, but. It was long enough already, so I didn't add it. But uh, Gilgal is where, uh, as they came into the land, they made a covenant with God. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's where a whole lot of circumcision happened, so that's pretty fun. Mm. Uh, but it was a moment where Israel were kind of dedicating themselves to God. Uh, and so I think it's of note that the angel came that way because it's a reminder. Hey, you guys, you've made this covenant. You've, you've declared that you're going to trust God and look at what you've done. So it goes from this covenant to a place of weeping. Yeah. Any more? Yeah, Lynette. So would you come to a conclusion that Joshua is already out of the scene? Okay. And <clears throat> so that the people actually relied on the leader more than trusting God? Yeah, would so, you, you yep, sorry, go. So uh, so they put their faith in Joshua rather than putting their faith or trusting God. Yeah, so yep. which is quite dangerous, even in a church, you know, we should really trust God. Mm, I know absolutely. the leaders are there. Don't don't tie your trust to me or Liam. <laughs> no. yeah, it'll end in <laughs> it will end in weeping. Yeah. Yep. But what I mean is it's possible that we can worship a person following the person rather than worshipping God or, follow, or obeying following God. Yeah. Isn't yeah, that right? Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, we see that through church history uh, or Bible history probably more uh, accurately. Uh, so uh, later on when they have kings, when there's a good king, the nation goes well. When there's a bad king, the nation goes poorly. Uh, so we, do, we are heavily influenced by our leaders. It's kind of a theme in Judges. Uh, so you'll notice, we'll talk about this more next week, but... Uh, often a book starts with the end of the previous leader. Uh, 
So, so Exodus starts with the end of Joseph as the last leader and the beginning of Moses. Uh, Joshua starts going from Moses to Joshua. Uh, even Judges, Ruth kind of uh, chronologically Judges goes into 1 Samuel and, and we get a new leader there in Samuel and then in uh, 1 Kings, 2 Kings, end of 2 Kings, start of 2 Kings, David dies, we get Solomon and so, or is that 1 Kings? 1 Kings, sorry. Bit scattered, but yeah, so so it is a key thing when a leader changes. Judges has this theme of uh, everyone did as they want. There was no king, uh, and so we kind of see what happens without a good leader. Uh, we see Judges shows us the need for the word judge means savior. Uh, it shows us the need for a good savior. It shows us the need for Jesus ultimately. Yeah, but so that was kind of a all over the place. But hopefully that. Answered somewhat. We might wrap it up there.